0: Patrick r mcdonough with my co-host Brendan lafaro hello and today we have a lovely guest alan baxter
1: hi how you doing
0: what got you into horror initially
1: <laughs> it's a good question um i don't know is the simple answer um <laughs> i i i've read like voraciously for as long as i can remember um and i, I was i've mentioned this before online as well i think there's um I grew up in a little village in southern England, um, surrounded by farms. I used to walk up to the local farm and buy milk and eggs directly from the farmer when I was a kid. That was one of my chores. I I grew up in that sort of country. Um, And there was a traveling library that used to come to the village every second Tuesday. So I'd get home from school and I'd sit there twiddling my thumbs until I think, I think 3.30 or 4 o'clock or something the traveling library was used. So it was basically like this big bus that had been converted inside, and there was shelves, and you could basically use your library card, and you could go and trade books. And the librarian guy who drove that that traveling library um, got to know the fact that I was into fantasy and stuff like that, and he would always say, he'd see me come he and go, hey, i got a new book for you, and we sort of had this thing going on. And after a while, I started just basically the ideas of fantasy and horror started blurring together. And I was only 11 or 12, and I'd read a Stephen King book. And I remember saying to him, oh, I read this book. It wasn't really fantasy, but it was so good. I can't even remember which king it was now. Um, but he, but he, he said to me, oh, OK, well, if you like books like that, then, and then he started offering me other stuff. And he introduced me to James Herbert and Richard Matheson and all, all those, you know, the classics in horror. And so I was, yeah, 11, 12 years old, started reading that stuff. And I never really drew distinctions. I didn't really think this is horror, this is fantasy or whatever. These were, it were just books that I loved. So... Yeah, so I can't really answer the question, but it's probably down to the traveling library more than anything
0: else. That's cool. I never had the uh, privilege of experiencing a travel library. I, I had, I, I did have a library in my hometown that uh, that my mom and dad would take me and my siblings to. Um, and in the summertime, they would have a, a little uh, book club for kids. Is that is that something that a traveling library does, or is it, is it literally a mobile store or library
1: yeah literally a mobile library i mean it was part of the the bigger library that was in town but for me to go there that would be like a 2k walk up to the main road and then a a 20 minute bus ride into town to go to the library so the traveling library was part of the big main library that would travel around to to the uh, outlying areas and a lot of a lot of the time they would travel like that for more for the older people who couldn't who weren't so mobile um, so I would frequently be in the in the bus there looking through the shelves and I'd be the only kid uh, amongst a bunch of pensioners um, but you know it was just a service the library provided so I would go into the library in town occasionally but I often didn't need to simply because this, this guy would just basically always watch my back he always <laughs> had recommendations for me and all sorts of things that I would need so I rarely needed to go to the library itself.
2: Very cool. I love your description of, you know, that you, you saying you would read kind of whatever piqued your interest, whether it be horror or it could be fantasy or anything kind of like that. I feel like that's a really solid description of what your writing style kind of has turned into. Would you agree with well, that?
1: Yeah, maybe that's true. Because um, you see a lot of people I've been asked in interviews before as well, when people say, why did you why did you resist? um. Calling yourself a horror writer for so long because I've mentioned before that I, you know, I didn't know that I was, um, and and it wasn't really any particular resistance on my part. It's just that I, I I've always found it difficult to sort of explain what it is that I write. I've always been my, by far the biggest um, my favourite author and biggest influence on me is uh, is Clive Barker. Um, And the way that he writes that, he's always called the dark fantastique, you know, the way he just blends and blurs horror and fantasy and all those sorts of things together. You can read the Books of Blood and, you know, of course, many of those are straight up horror stories. And you read something like uh, Imagica or The Great and Secret Show. And it's like, well, yeah, there's definitely horror elements in there. It's dark and there's fantasy. And there's also these kind of, um, excuse me, these kind of contemporary real world crime elements and stuff like that to it. Um, And so that's what I've, always written as well so when people say what do you write it's it's always a bit difficult to pin down and a lot of the time um I would have trouble saying you know I'd say oh I write genre fiction a lot of fantasy a lot of horror blah 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 it was difficult to say so these days when people ask I normally just go I'll write horror and dark fantasy because it's the easiest thing to sort of describe without going off a deep end of massive descriptions but i always include mystery and crime and whatever else in in these stories i genre mash shamelessly so yeah and, and so that's probably that influence of my reading was probably the same way i never really thought about what genre i was reading i just read the books that i thought were cool
2: i like that you just you you go with horror because it's really just easier than uh trying to uh lump in all the possibilities rather than you know giving a 500 word synopsis of what you could kind of put the put the book into you just you know it's horror if you, if you like yeah. horror you might like this <laughs> exactly and i and
1: i love horror i read <clears throat> i read horror obviously and i definitely write it i mean a collection like Serb cold that came out last year that's more a collection of horror stories than anything else even though there is a lot of fantasy and crime and whatever else so i've got no issue with uh, being a horror writer but it's just it's well horror is a part of what I do it's not sort of all of what I do but I have to say that recent sort of years over the last few books I do seem to be leaning more into horror Mm -hmm. than anything else but um, I guess that sort of will fluctuate back and forth a little bit you know sometimes uh, I'll write more in fantasy more in crime more in horror it's something that varies different different recipes for different books I think.
2: Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, s- some of the books that I, I've read that you wrote, uh, Served Cold, you mentioned, but uh, even Manifest Recall is almost kind of that gritty uh, crime world. It kind of reminded me of um, almost, it has almost kind of a, a Guy Ritchie tone to it, just not in England, uh, but then we throw the supernatural into it to give it a completely different bent. You've got the Rue, which is just its own, freaking thing uh and then the last one i just wrapped up was uh golden fortune dragon jade which is completely completely different than any of the others uh that that i've got on my shelf right there but they're decidedly all alan baxter books so there's your answer uh you you don't write horror you don't write you don't even have to go with genre fiction you write alan baxter stories
1: well i mean that's awesome because um, that's really good of you to say if anything I guess that's kind of what I want to be known as in some ways really everybody knows that Stephen King is a horror writer in quotes because he definitely there's horror in it but you look at the stuff he writes and it's very varied uh, people just know Stephen King people know Clive Parker, people know Jack Ketchum or whatever um, so if you can get to a point where people see it's a book by me and that's enough for them to want to go and check it out, and then then yeah, that's fantastic. The ones you, you listed there are a perfect example. I mean, Manifest Recall is Southern Gothic, but with this supernatural element to it, um, it's also heavily sort of influenced with organized crime. Then there's my novel Devouring Duck, which someone described as Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels if Clive Barker wrote it, which was <laughs> fucking brilliant. I mean, I was very happy with that description. And and that is, that was my London Organised Crime novel that has this weird supernatural assassins and mad weird shit going on. Uh, Surf Cold is definitely horror stories. Dragon Fortune, I mean Golden Fortune, Dragon Jade is is um unashamedly just a historical fantasy novella that um you know with martial arts and geomantic magic and stuff that was just a heap of fun to write but so that novella is probably as far into fantasy as i go and maybe serve cold is, or maybe the rue because that yeah straight up um straight up b-movie gorshlock for that for that novella which was a it was a heap of fun um so yeah I'm, I'm i'll go anywhere really with this wherever story takes me
0: you know what we'll, we'll tackle rue a little bit i know you've talked about it to death but uh I think Brennan and I, for obvious reasons, maybe not so obvious to people, I haven't read it yet. Have to at least talk about it a little bit. But before <laughs> we before we dive into that,
1: you're part of the reason it exists after all. <laughs>
0: That's so fucking cool. Tell my tell my wife that. Let her know I'm cool. Um, <laughs> but seriously, uh, something that I wanted to talk about is something that you and the boys that this is horror taught me that. I never thought about it until I listened to the last time you were on um, which was I think last month uh, that was released but it was yeah be- something like that. yeah you guys were talking about horror and then basically um, I think it branched into like pe- basically people don't realize, what horror is like? They think it's this one thing where I, I'm gonna use the rue as an example. Where it's just like a, a b horror movie where it's just full of gore, maybe a maybe a little dramatized, and, and they don't take into consideration all the other subgenres. Because like my wife, if you were to ask her, she probably would say no. But her and I, like she'll she'll say like, oh, this is what I want to watch tonight because we we tend to watch. One show while we're eating dinner most nights and um often she'll say i want to watch this on uh the show about serial killers because there's so many on like netflix for example and um that that's horror i mean that's true crime horror
1: yeah well i mean this is the thing about horror and this is why i have no issue being um sort of being recognized as a horror writer but i do have an issue when people automatically dismiss horror um Obviously, especially in the 80s, um, with the paperback boom and the massive rise in slasher movies, um, horror kind of ended up with a bad rap. And now a lot of the time, when I mean, you talk about horror to people in the horror community, there's no problem. They know exactly what's going on. Talk about horror to people outside the horror community. And as soon as you say the word, they immediately think of um, slasher movies, um, hostels or whatever. And they're like, oh, no, I don't like horror. It's like, well, OK it's quite possible that you don't like gore or you don't like torture porn or whatever and a lot of people who are massive horror fans also don't like that stuff but that's not all that horror is you know it's such a broad-ranging genre it's got so much depth to it um, I'm really pleased to see things like um, uh, you know Jordan Peele's films people like Josh Malaman and Paul Tremblay and people writing books that are uh, kind of giving a bit of a renaissance to what horror can be um, and which is another reason that I'm sort of embracing it more now and go, yeah, yeah, I'm a horror writer. I write fantasy and (laughs) stuff too, but yeah, I'm a horror writer. Check it out. It's a lot more than you might think in the hope that we can kind of rebirth a respect for horror as a genre. Equally, horror isn't just a genre. Horror and comedy are basically two different spices that you can add to any story. So, you know, you can write a straight up horror story, but you can write you know, a thriller with horror elements. You can write a comedy with horror elements. You can write fantasy with horror. It's one of those things. So I think it's important that we do what we can to sort of educate the general reading public on how broad and interesting and fucking amazing horror is because it's not just Saw movies, you know?
0: Absolutely. And then you got great ones like that's arguably the coolest, most spine chilling uh killer that's probably been on any book uh hannibal lecter like that that whole trilogy is just so incredibly popular uh to the point where thomas harris the author doesn't even have to do a fucking interview for like 30 or 40 years and he's still making bank
1: <laughs> and those are horror stories i mean everybody would yeah. their yeah they are they are <laughs> no. stories, they're horror stories yes and no question that they're horror stories um yeah that that's it's exactly right sometimes you have to sort of recognize what you're looking at with those things but yeah we, we'd all love uh, a fraction of the recognition thomas harris has got <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah and I, I love how uh when jordan pales, i think it was us i could be mistaken for his his uh, other film but um they were Whoever it was, I I guess uh, they were trying to push that as a thriller, but he flat out said, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, he flat out said, this is a horror, and uh, someone at my work actually was talking about it, and they they kept using the word thriller, and I was biting my tongue, and I was like, no, it's not, it's a horror, and and they tried to argue with me, and go, the guy that made the film said it's a horror, so take his own word for it.
1: I mean, I used to do it a lot as well because you, you, you know, in trying to encapsulate what you do without sort of shooting yourself in the foot and, and alienating readers, for a long time, people, when people said to me, "What do you write?" I ended up. I used to say I write supernatural thrillers because the majority of my stuff <clears throat> has some sort of supernatural or fantastical element. The majority of them are kind of fast-paced, thrilling reads, and it's a good description, but that's not all they are. Mm. Uh, but I deliberately don't use that term anymore. Or at least not that term on its own for exactly that reason. So you know, uh, no, I write horror and dark fantasy. I write supernatural thrillers. I write blah blah blah. You know, but I don't yeah. start with that anymore for, that, for exactly that reason.
0: Does your um is your wife a reader? And if she is, does she maybe not your stuff, but is she into horror at all? And and I got a third question. Sorry, I'm just kind of doing a burst question right. thing. Uh, is she doesn't like horror does she like feel funny when you tell people that uh that's what you write
1: um she, she fits somewhere on the scale um definitely not a horror fan does not like um horror movies or anything like that can't can't do anything um in movies with sort of visual gore or that kind of stuff um doesn't mind a good sort of scary thriller That's got, you know horror without um too much gore and stuff in it she reads she's read my novels she kind of quit on serve cold because she goes oh, i can't do it it's too much for me um because that one does definitely lean a lot more into horror stories than anything else um but she is a reader very much so she's a reader and she's an artist she's an oil painter and she does these kind of weird creepy paintings so she's uh she's definitely into the the weird and the macabre and stuff to some degree uh just
0: certainly not as much as myself oh no kidding that's that's awesome that you're a uh your boy gets to see two parents like that. That's the coolest thing to me. I love my parents, but I wish that they were both the grave types. My mom wrote a little bit and I got to read a, a poem. It was the weirdest time. And I got to read it. it. It was a poem she wrote for her father at his uh, funeral. And it made me cry. And I'm like, when you're a writer, like wh- when did this happen? And she's also a painter. I didn't know about until years later. Um, well, it, I, I'm just um, imagining your son when he grows up. I'm sure he's going to really appreciate that his his mom and dad can express every every emotion they have <laughs> in art.
1: Well, we're we're fairly concerned he's going to grow up to be a you know a right wing accountant or something just because you know kids <laughs> rebel against their parents. But, but right now, um, we, between us, we run a kung fu academy, and um, she's a painter, and I'm a writer, so we're sort of encouraging all those sorts of things in him and he loves stories he loves reading he loves to draw and he do craft he's an incredibly creative kid so yeah hopefully it rubs off at least a little bit that
0: yeah that um i don't see why i wouldn't and especially because i do see you posting about uh, your boy reading which is awesome how, how old is he again uh six and a half now oh okay um so you do talk about that's something that I love. I, I've told you, but for people that might not know, um, I personally love seeing uh, basically guys talking about their emotions, and it, it not being like a weird or you know a macho thing. Um, is there any author that you look up to that kind of portrays the same uh, the same way you look at life, fatherhood, and and uh, basically how you approach your family?
1: um i don't know i mean there's quite a few out there i definitely i i fucking hate the whole masculine boys will be boys boys don't cry and all that bullshit it's the most damaging stuff (laughs) well you know for many ways it's the most damaging thing in the world right now there's a bunch of fucking idiot men out there who mainly because they're brought up to think they need to be alphas and hardasses and whatever and they're just completely not in any shape or form um i'm very open with my kid about how we feel about things um more than happy to say to him i don't know um when he asks questions and say you know i don't know let's go and look it up and stuff like that um so basically anybody who treats their kids that way as far as i'm concerned is good i think it's really important for us it's important for us to be that way but it may be more so it's really important for parents to bring up their boys especially um Mm. to understand that expressing emotions is okay to understand that you know women are equal and not to be and conquered and all this bullshit that's been persisting for so long it's kind of our responsibility to bring our boys up to be better than we are in that respect so anybody who who does that earns my respect
0: Hmm. that's a great way to look at it um there's two other guys i think about uh actually three jonathan jans brian keen and uh jar lansdale uh those you four guys are ones that personally i look up to in that regard uh that I'm like, I want to be a full, you know, not, maybe not a full-time writer, but I want to write books and get paid for it and have a family that I get to spend the rest of my life with. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of like cliche looking at your life as a writer as a drunk that just is really not happy with himself. And I, I don't know, I see guys like you that are not that at all. It's awesome. It's, it's yeah, inspirational. I well, thanks. I mean, that's fantastic company
1: to include me in. It's um, I, I get pissed off with this whole tortured artist bullshit. It's like, you know, I write better books when I'm in a good state of mind and I'm not stressed about putting food on the table. Suffering for your art is is some kind of bullshit. We 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 definitely draw on life experience, especially in horror. Um, we can we can sort of draw on pain and whatever else to inform what we do. But there's plenty of it around without having to only be this tortured soul. Like, you know, fuck that. Chase happiness. Like, I think it's important that you, if we're in a good place and we try to be nice and we try to be kind and we look after ourselves and we look after our families and stuff, we're going to be in a much better position in all of life. And then there's still plenty to draw on for, um, you know, for our art. And no matter how lucky we find ourselves in our partners and our families and everything else there's still shit that goes on in the world there's still shit that happens to us you know that there's there's still plenty to draw on for experience you just have to be out in the world and be living it to know that so yeah I think it's uh, I think there's great strength in in pursuing happiness and pursuing a happy family and being being kind person and yeah and looking out for people There's um I, it pisses me off when people always talk about the fact that you, you know you can only make good art if you're a if you're a tortured soul and you're living in pain and whatever. Fuck that. Yeah, I,
0: I've tried, I've tried uh, writing drunk and it just is, and I've tried doing it stoned and i I look at it the next day, and I'm like, what the fuck did I write? This doesn't make any sense yeah I'll
1: I'll quite often if I'm I normally work in the daytime because I tend because of running the school I tend to work teach teaching the evenings so um, my life is sort of structured around my family and writing in the daytime teaching in the evenings whatever but on the occasions where I am writing in an evening um, I'll quite often sit there with a whiskey beside me but uh, not to the point of Of getting drunk that whole right drunk edit sober thing is interesting advice but it just involves makes you do a shitload more editing than you might need to do otherwise
2: (laughs) uh
0: brennan uh i'll just cut it off that dead air (laughs) um brennan you want to take it from here man
2: yeah um so it's funny i think of that whole starving artist thing as almost akin to um being under contract for multiple books, if you are writing and you know trying to solely bleed out on the page because you uh, have to put food on the table, you you kind of approach it with that same type of desperation where you just kind of have to meet that quota and add you know one more book to the pile because you signed a contract and took an advance saying you would. Desperation is not necessarily going to throw your most creative stuff out there. I mean, what do you guys think about that?
1: Well, no, that's true. I mean, it, there's two sides to that as well. It's, um, if you have, um, you know, if you've got an advance and you've signed contracts or stuff, then you can kind of relax a little bit going, okay, I know this is this is work that's that's worth doing. You know, I've been paid for it, I'm going to roll with it. Uh, it, I don't have to survive while I'm making the work and then try to sell it, which is, you know, the. The two, most of us do are, are working on that second level. Most of us are writing stuff that we're then trying to sell. It's nice if you get to a point where, um, you know, you've got a publisher who's going, right, I want the next thing, I want the next thing, and you say to them, shall I write this? And they're like, yep, that's good. So, you know, there's a there's a wide sort of spectrum of, of positions you can be in. But if you're constantly working with desperation and under pressure, then sure, it can inform the art, but it's a hell of a difficult way to work and it's, it's also it's an unhealthy way to work you know even if you end up do, if you do end up producing good work at what cost you know at what personal cost and you know to your physical and your mental health as opposed to being in a position where you're a bit more relaxed about what you're doing I would quite happily um, write full-time I wouldn't give up the Kung Fu school because apart from um the fact i've just been you know martial artists for decades as a part of my life um but it's also it also gets me out and into the world and interacting with people and stuff which if i was a full-time writer of course i might not do nearly so much of it i'd be sitting here in my cave doing nothing else um but also it's i need to do it because i need the income from the school because the money that we make is, is not enough from any single one of our endeavors um so you know while it might be nice to have that security of knowing that work is sold and well paid for and you can make a full-time living at it um it that also has its own issues as well it's like if i had so much writing work on that i was paid for that i didn't have time to run the school that that would be a problem too because that's a part of my life so i think people need to find their balance where they're not where there is you know where there's as little stress as possible involved but of course for most of us pursuing a writing life is a constant stream of rejection with the occasional acceptance that comes along every now and then that makes us keep going because we're too bloody minded to do different
2: you you make a good point too as far as uh the experience aspect that you're 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 going to kind of get a lot more life experience uh, with the people you meet through, you know, your martial arts or even just through getting out of the house than you are going to uh, locking yourself in a way in a cabin with, uh, you know, whiskey or whatever your drink of choice is. And, you know, you certainly can't be quite as creative without that life experience. It's just such an important ingredient.
1: Yeah, you end up getting to the point where you're one of those writers who just writes stories about writers because all you do is write and that's all you know anymore. It's, uh, it's um, Life experience is really important. If I didn't run the Kung Fu school and I was in a position where I could afford to be a full-time writer, I would absolutely still do something else. I would join some sort of club or something that would make sure that I interacted with other people because it, it's essential for that life experience to get out into the world, to see things, to see people, to interact. I mean, in many ways, that's why this whole COVID-19 quarantine thing is is so difficult in a way, is because it's people like us, you know, we're used to kind of staying home and not going out much and <laughs> doing, you know, doing doing whatever we do from home, that's fine. But there's still that human interaction that you miss out on. And so if you end up in a position where you never have that, then it's, it's not good for you, but it's also not good for your art. So yeah, I think if I ever got to the point where I decided to wind back running the school, I would still, I would still do something that kept me interacting with people and kept me out in the world. You need life experience to write from.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And along those lines is just think about social media as an example of that. Like uh, people that you don't even know, sometimes I'm sure all of us get sucked into some idiot saying something And we feel a need to reply. But if that was in a face-to-face situation, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but nine times out of ten, I'm probably just going to walk away (laughs) laughing at them like, why am I going to waste my time? But in in a social media regard, uh, I just feel a need to to tell them something uh, that they're wrong or something silly to get them going. Um, It's like you need the face-to-face to... To really full uh, to to really feel everything, um, it, it's something that us as a species needs. So if it if it were to pursue the pandemic, it's gonna make things really weird, especially if your kids growing up thinking this is a normal situation. And uh, I don't know, it's it's definitely a time that we gotta learn how to adapt.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, we're in a new normal now, and there'll be a new normal after this. There's, there there won't be any going back. quite Exactly how it was before. Um, I kind of hope that, at least in many ways, there'll be a better version of normal following this. But uh, I'm cynical on many fronts, and that's one of them. So we'll wait and see.
2: My biggest fear is that we're going to have that outrage and that that call for change, whether it be for uh, you know wider health insurance here or for you know uh, sick leave again here. Um, <laughs> There's a there's a pattern going on there uh, or, or even just, you know, treating each other better because we're all in the same boat. And my biggest fear is that that's going to be a, a trend for a little while. And then the just kind of societal mindset is just going to return back to where we were um, taking things for granted again. Um, I at this point, it, I don't see how we could possibly do that. But you, 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 do, you can't underestimate the stupid. Look at 9-11. People, yeah, people are real creatures
1: of habit, though, you know. They fall back into routine so easily instead of, you know, if it's easier to fall back into routine than it is to try and make something better, people will just do the easy thing so often.
0: Absolutely. Like, uh, wasn't the Australian wildfires, wasn't this, that this year? it uh, yeah. was that last year? I can't remember.
1: No, it feels like a decade ago, and it feels like last week at the same time. It was January.
0: see that's what I'm saying your book came out a little after that like it just I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or not but it it, I don't know everything feels off like I still work Monday through Friday um I still do what I have always done for the last four years but like I'm still losing track of days and it's it's happening it's getting worse every every week that passes and I'm not sure why
1: yeah, I mean, everything's upside down right now, man. Like, the, the world is messed up. So many people are just doing different sort of patterns of living to what they're used to. It's, you know, there's, there's that old saying that sometimes nothing happens for decades and sometimes dec- decades happen in a week. And you know, it's, it's been a bit like that all fucking year. So
2: It has. So, Alan, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of... Um... Writers especially are falling on, you know, really far on one side of the spectrum or the other. Either they are are feeling like this is an opportunity, you know, being at home, having more time uh, gives them an opportunity to really get a lot more work done, get their best work done. And then there's the other side that are just not able to really sit down and get anything out that they're happy with. How, how do you feel like uh, this has affected your work? Well, I've never been
1: busier, r- frankly, at the moment, because um, I mean it affects people really differently. Like if if you're at a if you're in a job that's been put on hold and you don't have kids, then sure, I bet you got a lot of extra time. Um, but since this whole thing's been going down, we've had to homeschool our son. I've had to figure out how to teach classes online, doing Zoom classes and shit like that, to try to keep my student base. Sort of at least partially engaged while this is going on plus writing and everything else like this i'm i'm used to having quiet time at home to write because that's how my life is structured you know that's part of what i do um and right now i've got a load of extra shit going on like we're kind of in a bit more of a habit now when it comes to the online classes we kind of got a bit of a system going so it sort of works all right um but You know, with my son around, normally my son's at school five days a week, and right now he's not, so I actually have less time than I normally do. Um, So I'm still, my wife and I kind of share that load pretty evenly, so we still get work done, but not nearly as much as we might do otherwise. Uh, And especially for the first few weeks of it, I was finding it really freaking hard to focus um, on anything because my brain was being pulled in so many different directions. Uh, But I ended up putting a whole bunch of other projects on hold and for, for some for a long time now i've been wanting to write uh, a book for my son i've been wanting to write something he can read before you know he's a teenager because everything i've written so far i don't wouldn't want him reading before he was at least sort of 12 or 13 like i was when i got into horror and all this dark weird shit that i write um so i started writing this uh sort of middle grade fantasy novel that i'd had in mind for ages that um i was i kept thinking to myself oh, that, that, that there's a good story there. I want to write that for my son. And so I was like, well, okay, well this weird time in the world, I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put the other projects aside until I'm in a bit of brain space again, and I'm going to write this thing. So I'm about 20,000 words into what will probably be about a 50,000 word um, fantasy novel for kids with pirates and dragons and witches and all sorts of crazy shit. So I'm basically using this time to write a book for my son. If, if it ever gets published, then great. But if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, it's for him. So...
2: That's awesome. As a 34-year-old man, I would read that.
1: Yeah.
0: So, so, <laughs> sign Brennan and I up for that, seriously.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's the thing. I mean, I enjoy – I mean, I, one of my favourite books when I was a kid was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Ronald <laughs> Roald Dahl book. And um, I was really looking forward to reading that to him and really hoping he'd enjoy it. And a few months ago, we got to that, and that was our bedtime reading. Uh, and it was just an absolute fucking joy to read it to him watch how much he was enjoying it and realize that I still loved it too. So, you know, that's great. I mean, just because things are written for kids doesn't mean they're only for kids. So I'd like to think that uh, this is a book that people of all ages could enjoy as well, even though I'm mainly aiming it for a... So, yeah, for, I'm sort of aiming 8 to 10 kind of age group. My son definitely reads ahead of his age group at the moment, but this would be something to read to him as well. So, yeah.
0: Like I said, me and Brennan are down because, like you... Like you said, it's not just for kids. Um, that That's something that I think about a lot because two of my favorite, well, one of my favorite series is The Chronicles of Narnia. And when my boy's old enough, I want to read that to him. And The sure. Hobbit. Ha, um, The Hobbit, have you read that to your boy yet? Because I feel like that would be a book that you enjoy. And I don't know if that that
1: is, is it? It is, yeah. And it's definitely on the list of things to read. There's two books that I've got um see the thing is kids my kid especially he's a stubborn fucker I got no idea where he gets it from but um <laughs> if if he knows that I want to read him a story he's like yeah no I'm not interested um because he knows how much I want it and so um I got away with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because I was just really casual about it and kind of said hey, what about this one um but I've got um two two of my favorite stories from back in the day that I still love now are The Hobbit and Treasure Island. Nice. And I've got these beautiful hardback editions of both um, that I bought for him and they're sitting on his bookshelf and then we get to the end of a book and, I'm, you know, the next night comes around and I'm like, oh, what should we read? Do you want to start Treasure Island? And he looks and he's like, uh, nah, not yet. And he'll pick that up. <laughs> Because he And so we, we're working our way through this series of books, the treehouse books. It starts with the 13-storey treehouse and then the 26 and then the 39, and it goes up to fucking 100 and some shit. We're up to, uh, I think, the 52-storey treehouse at the moment. He's enjoying <laughs> in those books. So at some point, I will get to uh, read The Hobbit and Treasure Island to him. They're the, they're the two that I'm really, really hanging on, really want to do. So hopefully... Before you just long have ahead. to
2: pretend you just have to pretend you don't really care, <laughs>
1: yeah. That's the thing. I'll be like, uh, you know what? I don't want to read Treasure Island anymore, I don't really like it. No, I don't want to read that, so you got to be careful because my kid is smart, you know. Sometimes he doesn't know what reverse psychology is, like, he couldn't tell you what it is, but he'll look at you and he'll be like, nah, I can see what you're doing, <laughs> so. Yeah. his intelligence is a blessing and a curse for him and for us
0: <laughs> <laughs> deep inside alan's like please let this be the night that he takes treasure island
1: yeah yeah man it's, yeah really they're, These two books that have just yeah they've had such an influence on me and i'm like i want you to read these stories i want you to experience what it is to to immerse in these stories and yeah we'll see we'll get there eventually i'm sure i hope
0: that'd be great and you should definitely announce that on twitter because clearly that that'd be a big deal that'd be a big dad deal <laughs> yeah i will you'll know um i, I had one more question pertaining to the ch- uh children books now for me personally since i grew up in the 90s um Brennan, i'd like to know this for you too goosebumps goosebumps is what got me into horror not stephen king um it was R. L. stein the television show in the books um I was curious, is that something that you ever read? No, for me. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. I should, have, <laughs> I should have addressed it. Um, Brennan, yeah, I'll go to you real quick, because I feel like your answer would be quicker. Uh, uh. <laughs> is that something that you read? And then, Alan, is that something that you read?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I did read the whole series. I don't know that I would say that's what got me into horror. I think it was more I read those because that's what um, was really big in the uh, – early to mid 1990s when when i would have been you know exposed to that stuff uh and, and and i could definitely credit those uh scary stories to tell in the dark books with the completely horrifying illustrations that yeah you know i, I was not prepared for as a second grader um <laughs> but yeah yeah I, I definitely read those and then alan and <laughs>
1: yeah, no i i, I didn't I, I was in my 20s in the 90s okay um Uh, so that yeah that's i'm very aware of them i'm i know uh i know all about them but uh yeah it's not something i read and i probably should i should probably check them out it might be worth getting one of those little box sets of some of those and and gifting those to my son that might be a little nudge towards horror for him in a year or two's time but um uh for both those scary stories to tell in the dark i know a little bit i've read some of that um but yeah the the goosebump stuff was uh yeah i kind of missed out on but maybe i'll get to experience that with him sometime before too long
0: that's awesome um oh you know what here's a good plug because this would definitely apply to you um i bought lex h jones the old one in the sea that'd be perfect if you like lovecraft even if you don't like that could that could be one nudge to get your boy into it because as a full grown man i loved it and and it's another book that I'm going to read to my kid when he's old enough. But that might be a book that you you might want to explore too. Oh, okay,
1: yeah, Julie noted. That's good. I'm always good. I'm always um, happy for tips like that. I'll I'll add it to the list.
0: Yeah, it's with a sinister horror company, and um, uh, I I'm sure you know who they are, but they're uh they're pretty um awesome. They they have so many good books, and I feel like people don't talk enough about UK horror and uh. I guess especially since I've started to know you and Andy Call, uh, Australian horror. Um, is there is there like a scene in Australia that you feel is just not appreciated enough? Oh yeah, yeah
1: definitely. I mean I'm 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 both. I'm British. I grew up in the UK. I left the UK in my mid twenties. Um, I've been more than twenty years now Australian. So I kind of bridge the gap on both. That's like my novel devouring dark with set in London because I always wanted to write a London crime novel because I, you know, grew up not far from London, um, was always into that. So, and the the UK horror scene is fantastic. But it's a little bit, it's a bit more well-known, you know, obviously people like Ramsey Campbell and whatever. Um, but the Australian horror scene is, is fantastic and I'm always doing what I can to try to um, promote it and make more of it. And I'm making a conscious effort now to do, to write more um, in Australia, there's um, the Alex Kane series, which is um, a trilogy, has got an Australian protagonist. It starts in Australia, in Sydney, and it frequently returns there. That was a deliberate and very conscious choice. Um, the Rue, obviously, is unashamedly Australian. I mean, that's exploitation, <laughs> taking that's just going about as far Aus as you can go. Um, and I, I've frequently set short stories. A lot of the time my short stories would be set in no particular place I always did this thing where it's like well you know it could be anywhere and it doesn't matter so if you want it to be if you're American and you think it might be in your city then it is Um, and I kind of I quite like that in terms of of settings I like the, the the setting of the city or whatever to be a character but you know it doesn't have to be specifically in any given place but more recently I've made a point of writing actual um australian settings because i want australian characters and australian settings to to become more recognized um and like the the last story in surf cold is a novella called yellow heart which is uh, unashamedly australian it's like tasmanian deliverance that was a very sort of conscious decision um and i'm currently making notes the next big project i'm going to start work on is um is going to be a collection of interconnected novellas that um um, Will be set in a fictional Australian um, coastal town um, that is again going to be deliberately and clearly Australian in setting because I want people to to recognise that and it seems that people there's definitely a sort of hunger for that that people were interested in in stories especially horror set in places that they're not used to so you know basically set somewhere other than America or Britain um, and alongside that I'm always trying to promote uh, australian horror writers we've got an amazing community such um really supportive i was so um, pleased to sort of discover and become part of the community here many years ago the general sort of science fiction fantasy and horror community it's so open and welcoming in australia there's no or at least there's very little uh, sort of ego and competition or anything like that this everybody's very supportive and there's some mad talent in this country you know people like karen warren who really should be way more way better known than she is she writes some of the darkest most twisted shit going and she's a great example um of what horror can be that's not like we were talking about before that's not a slasher movie but it's just really good literary creepy horrible disturbing (laughs) horror without any need for gore or anything like that so so yes yeah short version yes it's great it's a great horror community in australia and i really wish a lot of the authors were better known
0: i'm just gonna put this out there uh i'm pretty sure if you got like uh, median i'm pretty sure everyone on my team would want to hear anyone that's outside of the norm like we want to promote as many many people as we can but i i don't know a whole lot of australian authors so i'm down to learn about as many as i can
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you should definitely check out Karen Warren. You should check out Aaron Drys. You should check out Rob Hood, Um, Angela Slater, Lisa Hannett. Lisa Hannett's just got a new book come out, actually, that uh, I guarantee will be amazing. She's an incredible short story writer. Um, This is her second collection that's just come out that would be worth looking for. Um, I think at some point, uh, a little while back, um, I wrote a list of great Aussie horror writers that was – it was on my blog, I think. I can't remember. I'm going back a while now. In in one of my attempts to uh, sort of promote more Australian writers, I think I wrote a list. But uh, I'll have to I'll have to check it out and um, and see if I can find it again. Oh, one of them was uh, one thing I did was short story writers, and I I made a specific uh, specifically Australian list among those. So that's something to to look into. But uh, I'll uh, I'll share that on Twitter. I've just found it now. Short story writers I recommend. It was a little uh, it was a list of short stories. So it includes a list basically old school writers, Australian and New Zealand writers, and and everyone else who I think's worth checking out. So maybe I'll share that um, on Twitter, and you can have a look into that and see in things that you don't know.
0: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely put that in the show notes in case anyone. I don't know how many people read show notes, but um, I mean, it can't hurt yeah that's right I mean that, and this is
1: exactly the thing you know like the um no matter how much we want to promote and how much we want to share things like that um a hit rate on this sort of stuff is always um it, it's always a sort of a real there's always a, a great attrition to it so that when I always talk to people about promoting the stuff that you like it's like if you don't enjoy a book well, then just fuck it don't worry about it don't tell anyone don't don't bother talking about it but if you do like. <laughs> if you do like a book then really talk about it tell people just post about it don't think that um, that there's no point you I've only got you know I've only got 60 followers on twitter what's the point of me tweeting about it it's because well there's 60 people there and six of them might see it and one of them might also read it and then if they enjoy it they might also mention it and that's how it works you know we we're, we're all seeing um, all these graphics talking about the pandemic at the moment and how a virus spreads and how you can reduce it massively this person stays home this person doesn't Going to work this person you know blah 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 and and the spread just reduces enormously when it comes to trying to promote the stuff that you like you need to be the opposite of that you need to be that you need to be that one person that does tell someone that might tell five more and so on and our careers writers careers are are almost entirely built regardless of marketing budgets or anything else our careers are almost entirely built on reader enthusiasm um, and people Talking about shit and telling their friends about it and buying copies of books as gifts for friends and family because they've enjoyed it. And so they always make a point of saying to people, just never underestimate the power you have as a reader because you might only have 50 followers and maybe only five people see your tweet saying what a great book this is. But if everybody who reads the book and has 50 followers does that and five people see it, then that's the beginning of exponential growth. But if you don't talk about the stuff you like, you guarantee nobody will see it. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's important. It's, it's, no matter where you get an opportunity to promote stuff, if you want to talk, if you enjoy something and you want to talk about it do because it does make a difference.
0: Absolutely. Like, I know, for example, South Park and Family Guy, um, I'm pretty sure both of those were canceled. I, I, and I'm even more sure that Family Guy was canceled twice, but due to, and this is before the internet was, had much of a press uh, A presence of social media it was due to word of mouth that uh people liked it and now look at it. i'm not saying any of us are going to be the next like the next south park because that's just such a massive show but uh it it does help you you never know who's going to hear you out or see a book and spread it around to one other person
1: yeah and you know it's there's, i mean i can use uh, this is a sort of slightly left of center example but um there's an australian author called matthew riley that pretty much everybody um in australia has heard of and he's got a massive international following i was i was on a supernova tour with him which is like a sort of pop culture expo thing and they always have a um a bunch of waters on board and there's always one guest there's, there's all of us like jobbing mid-listers and we sit at the table and we sell books and we sign books and we chat to people And if we're lucky we get a little queue of people now and then or people come and go but there's always one star author that kind of holds that together and they're the one that have just got the constant line so I've had you know some amazing experiences on that I got to sit with Raymond Feist when he was the guest author there and Brandon Sanderson and people like that Um, and one time Matthew Riley was there and his queue was just solid and it just was, it never went down. There were hundreds of people in the line all the time. And he, he's this massive presence, particularly in Australia. I don't know about elsewhere in the world. Um, but his story is a, a classic example of, of um, sort of luck and timing. You've got to have a good book. You've got to be able, you know, you've got to have the chops because the book's got to be there in the first place. But he managed to convince a store in Sydney to put his books on display for a week and he was like and, it, and he was self-published at the time with his first book um, and he was like you know do you reckon you could just for one week put these in your store and they were like yeah sure so you know he got a bit of luck there and he did that and then he got a massive piece of luck following that that somebody picked it up and enjoyed it and thought and gave I think it gave it to their daughter or someone who, who um, enjoyed it and said oh you know this is really fantastic book and that person had influence and all of a sudden He got this massive growth from this lightning strike of luck from just having a book picked up by the right person at the right time. That's what everybody's sort of looking for for their breakout book. You want that real sudden piece of luck that helps to expose you to that many more readers because, you know, there's loads of people out there with fucking great books, but you don't get that luck of exposure. So that can make you into a superstar the other side of that is instead of one person hitting you with a massive piece of luck it's hundreds or thousands of people giving you that tiny little bit of luck each time and so it's a much slower build but you you know the net result is the same and so that's what we're all counting on we're all counting on people talking about the stuff that they enjoy and sharing about it and saying you really need to check this out and the person does and they're like oh that was great and they tell their friends you you really need to check this out that's how stuff grows
2: So you have to lower the mask and cough Karen Warren into the face of the masses then.
1: (laughs) Karen Warren is a good one. She was actually, um, she was a guest at um, StokerCon last year. I want to say, I think it was last year. Um, She's starting to uh, get recognized now. Ellen Datlow frequently includes her in anthologies and stuff because she really is that good. Um, She's one of the few Australians that started to make a big dent outside of Australia. Um, but she still deserves a far greater readership than she has. But, as there's so many of the others I mentioned, people like Aaron Drys and uh, Angela Slater and Lisa Hannett, people, all these people that are writing really great horror. We've got some serious talent in Australia, and it's good to see it slowly becoming noticed. And people like yourself are fantastic and invaluable in that because, you know, we, we're far away. We're on the arse end of fucking nowhere. And it's difficult, especially <laughs> at the moment. But, I mean, it's difficult to get anywhere from Australia even when there's not a pandemic um so the fact that people like yourselves are happy to chat to us and let us just crap on like this and you know that word gets out across the world that's fantastic because that's what helps people to discover that we even exist and nobody's going to buy our books if they don't know about them. so
2: we are very happy to chat with you once we figure out you know what the hell time it is in australia versus what <laughs> what time it is here <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: uh, it's always an issue with uh, it's always an issue with um, what's the word time zones They're trying to get things lined up it's, when i try to do this is horror uh, and a couple of occasions i've done it i'm in australia and um the other two are in japan and texas respectively and try, trying to line up a time for that is always really juggling it's normally poor old bob pastorella who has to get up at six in the morning and he's always groggy and cranky <laughs> without <laughs> trying to get through his first coffee always, always makes me laugh
0: <laughs> yeah um so when we set up with Call uh i forget what time it was um i normally don't record we normally don't record on the weekends because um, like i said i work five days a week so i try to just spend time with my family on the weekends but uh andy i, I think we did it on the weekend I, I apologize if i'm wrong but whenever we did it um i tried to add him in our skype conversation like hey man uh you ready and he said oh uh you said in two hours is when i have it and that's what you did with me and i I just this is like the third fucking time i messed up man like i thought i nailed it i didn't
2: at all
1: well in in your defense there is also and this has happened to me a couple times on different things um you organize something for sort of three months down the line and it's in the diary but these so many places do this fucking daylight saving time bullshit which i hate changing the time by an hour oh um, shit but, but that that's what happened and, yeah and that definitely happened between us setting this up and now like because our our clocks changed like uh, three weeks ago or something like that so that was part of it so it's not all you it's
0: uh time is fucking stupid
2: oh man i was out <laughs> of my
0: math skills hear that Brendan? i'm not a complete fuck up
2: that's right it was time that was wrong we were we were fine uh alan I- i'm curious do you know of uh claire fitzpatrick
1: yes yeah i don't i don't know her personally but i'm aware of her she's um we have here the australian horror writers or actually the australasian horror writers association because it includes new zealand and stuff like that um and so that that's kind of like a mini version of the hwa and um i'm vice president of that um and we uh and she's a member, so uh, in the member pages and stuff like that, um, yeah, I'm aware of her with Facebook friends and stuff,
2: yeah. I'm not super knowledgeable about Australian writers. I didn't recognize a lot of the names you brought up, but uh, she she was one. Uh, I read her collection last summer, maybe, uh, Metamorphosis, and it's it's fantastic. It's very, very raw, I'll say. It's It's very honest. It's very open. It's very raw. I haven't really quite read anything like it. Uh, and that's that's definitely a book that I've been plugging for the last uh, year or so. Um, and definitely a good representation of uh, what an Australian author has to offer the rest of the world. Very cool. Yeah, I'm a, I
1: haven't read it. Um, I am aware of that book. I haven't read it. I've seen uh, I've seen Claire talking about it. Um, it's one of those ones that's sort of been on the radar for a while. So, yeah,
2: I'll, get, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, most definitely.
0: Um, Alan, I wanted to ask about your uh, what got you into martial arts because I don't think I've heard you talk about the actual what actually got you into it. I hear you talking about it all the time. Um, so yeah, what what got you into martial arts?
1: <clears throat> um, well, bullying at school largely um was the sort of initial trigger for it. Um, I honestly I can't even remember how old I was. Probably like nine or ten something like that I was always a nerdy kid and I was always you know nose stuffed in a book or whatever else um and I was getting bullied a little bit and pushed around a bit at school and my dad used to when he was um in his teens and early 20s he played rugby union um as did I when I got older um but he was also really into judo when he was a young man and so Apart from, you know, talking to teachers and everything else, my dad was like, well, why didn't, why didn't you do some judo? And every once in a while you can throw some of these dicks on their ass if they're giving you too much grief. <clears throat> um, and so I started doing judo um, and I really enjoyed it at the time. I, 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 like I say, I was probably I think I was probably about 10 or something at the time. And I did judo for a couple of years and, and really enjoyed it. it was going quite frequently. And then the judo teacher said to us one night he's like okay so sorry to let everyone down but I'm moving away um, I'm, but the same time and same place there's a new teacher going to take over so you know sorry I'm leaving but don't worry keep keep coming to class okay cool so kept coming to class and when the new teacher turned up turned out that he was a karate teacher not a judo teacher um, and I did karate for probably a year or so and decided that I it, it really didn't fit me I, I liked judo and I decided I really didn't like karate and I didn't really know why and I started trying to figure out what it was and at the time on the tv I don't know if you guys saw the monkey tv show um it was a Japanese show about a Chinese legend of, of um Sun Wukong the the monkey king riding around on his cloud and all that sort of stuff and fighting with his long staff he had the staff of heaven which is sort of magical weapon that he had I was absolutely fucking besotted with that show I thought it was fantastic and so when I ch- was trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do, I was looking into that and I'm like, well, what, what does, what's that? What does he do? That's what I want to do. Um, and I learned that that was Kung Fu. So subsequently, I went, right, OK, that's what I need to do. I need to find a Kung Fu school. So that's subsequently what I did. I went looking around and I found a Kung Fu school that was in the, the next town or the near, one of the nearer towns to my village. And I started going there and I learned that style of Kung Fu for, Um I can't remember, probably five or six years, and then I uh, changed to a, a different style for a few years. And eventually, when I one of the particular styles that really resonated and really seemed to fit me with a style called Le Um And then when I came traveling, got to Sydney, I'd been I was traveling. I would basically had a guitar and a backpack and was walking the earth like in Kung Fu. To be facetious um, about it. Um, But I spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia, got to Australia. and When I got to Sydney, I was going to stay with a friend of mine for a few months. I needed to earn some more money, so I figured I'd stay in Sydney for a while. Um, So I started looking around for somewhere to train while I was in Sydney and discovered that the great-great-grandson of the founder of Toilet Park ran a school in Sydney. It's like, well, fucking hell, that's astounding. So I started training there and, and, yeah, never looked back. So I've been training as a student of him now for, yeah,
0: Decades. Wow. That's awesome. And before uh say anything else, I'm glad you mentioned what the show was about because when you asked us a question, my mind went straight to the monkeys, the show about the band that turned into a real band. <laughs> the
2: monkeys, yeah.
0: not... <laughs> um but that's really cool, man. Uh so I don't think Brennan knows this, but like and anyone else, but uh, I've really thought about, and I told you this already, but just for anyone else that may be interested, I, I want to get into martial arts when my boy's older um, as a way for him and I to bond and as a way to teach him and me just, you know, self-defense because you don't know when you need it. Plus I know it's, it's really good way to keep your body in shape. Um, don't, it isn't it uh doesn't um living a, a healthy life kind of go hand in hand with with martial arts maybe not all martial arts but i would think that's kind of emphasized
1: well yeah i mean technically it should that, that's not necessarily the case for everyone there's uh there's a lot of unhealthy martial artists out there um but but yeah it should do i mean if you you're in a good school and you train hard and you train well, then it could, it should keep you fit and strong and flexible and all those things. And, you know, you should emphasize um, generally sort of healthy living. Like there's the founder of our style basically put down the, the 10 rules of our style. And among those rules, I don't drink too much alcohol and don't eat too much red meat kind of thing. And this, you know, hundreds of years ago, they were saying this about sort of trying to stay healthy. So really, I mean, when it comes down to it, there's, there's sort of three, aspects to being as healthy as possible most people can be fairly good at two of them in my experience so you know the three things to try to be a healthy person generally are to do some form of exercise to eat a healthy diet and to get enough sleep um and most people if they sort of commit to it they can do a lot of exercise and they can eat as healthy as they can most people don't get enough sleep these days Mm. um which is something i as well try to um be better at, especially because a lot of the time for me, I've always been a night owl. I like to be up late at night when it's quiet and everyone else is asleep. Um, But of course, when you have a six-year-old in the house, there's no chance of lying in in the morning. So if I stay up late, I don't get to sleep in late. Um, So I make a point of trying to sleep better than I normally do. But otherwise, yeah, I do try to do my best to eat healthy and take plenty of exercise. And the other side of my style as well is not just the Kung Fu, but the Qigong, which is the um, you know, the internal training and the meditative aspect of things, it's sort of the Tai Chi element of our style. And so I teach and train that um, and try to use a lot of that to to be in a a headspace as well as physical space as well. So, So technically, yes, it should. But like all things in life, it can be difficult to pursue as much as we might.
0: Hmm. yeah that makes sense um did you say I, i'm just making sure i heard you correctly did you say to live a healthy lifestyle you shouldn't eat meat or was it red meats? i'm not sure well, that
1: our rule the rules from our don't um try don't eat too much red meat is gotcha um, is what the yeah, and that's that's a general i mean that's a that's a good rule in general i, I certainly think that um you know, we're animals and life feeds on life. I don't have an issue with eating meat. I do try to eat less because we tend to eat a lot of red meat in the yeah. modern Western <laughs> diet, way more than we should. Um, so yeah, it's always kind of on our minds. I know my wife quite often brings it up. So like, oh man, we should try to eat less red meat, which is, it's smart. It's, it you know, there's a, it's good for it's an excellent protein it's good for iron and all those sorts of things but you know mm. too much of it has been proven to have issues as well so uh, as is the case with most things in life somewhere in the middle is usually the the best way to go any extremes either side can often bring up more problems
0: yeah sounds like uh you're basically saying a omnivorous diet is the best way to approach it but maybe i'm misinterpreting that well no i mean it's true i mean it-
1: I I think um, some meat in the diet is important Um, if you don't eat meat then fair enough if you have your reasons for it but you know you have to make a point of um, accounting for that you need to make sure that the things you would otherwise get from meat you are getting elsewhere you can't just simply cut meat out and um, ignore the fact that you're, you're subsequently not getting some of the things you might otherwise but if you eat heaps of fruit and vegetables heaps of you know good food that another good way of looking at it is only food you can recognize so if you know if you can look at something on your plate and you're like well i I don't know what's in that or i don't know how that's made then you probably shouldn't eat much of it um (laughs) it's a pretty safe bet of avoiding too much processed shit that we get these days um but yeah so if you eat good fresh fruit and veg and not too much meat and you should be in a pretty good shape most of the way
0: absolutely um i'm gonna preface my root the root question with something that I'm very curious about. Uh I don't know if this is really silly of me to ask, but are kangaroos a pet? Is that a thing? <laughs> um they're often
1: they're often on the barbecue. Um the <laughs> I, I tell you it's good meat, man, talking about red meat. It's it's far leaner than beef, it's really high in protein. It's it's a really good meat. It's uh uh, it makes for excellent steaks and stews and stuff like that. I think we're the only country in the world that eats the animals on our national emblem. The emu and the kangaroo make up the coat of arms of Australia. and We, we farm and eat them both, which I think is kind of funny. Um, I'm sure there are people who have pet kangaroos, but most people they're either a farm animal or a pain in the ass. Um, uh, farmers, you know, they're always busting fences and eating crops and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they're, a lot of the time they're pests to farmers or they're uh, um, an item to be farmed, Um, but they're also just part of our natural wildlife. So I'm sure there are people who have pet kangaroos, but they're not a common pet, no. Hmm.
0: uh, I'm a pescatarian, but when I was eating meat, I I tried kangaroo jerky and, I mean, maybe it was the brand I was eating, but it, it didn't taste bad. It just tasted like, if you were to tell me it was like another kind of meat you could have fooled me
1: yeah I've never had jerky actually I mean I've had jerky I mean I've never had kangaroo jerky um, mm. but uh, kangaroo meat uh, when you get steaks for the barbecue or you get you know um, chopped meat for stews and stuff like that it's basically just a really lean red meat it's a little bit more gamey than than beef but otherwise it's just a really lean red meat you could easily serve someone kangaroo tell them it was beef and they would probably not even notice they just think it was lean beef
0: <laughs> and then one more question uh along these lines is uh what's the strangest pet in australia that you are aware of strangest pet yeah like what, what's a pet that um okay for example the tiger king like just think of not just the tiger have you seen that documentary
1: no i've seen a lot of talk about it but i haven't watched the show
0: it, it, the guy owns uh, basically a bunch of exotic animals um He's not a nice man. He's in prison now. I hope I didn't ruin that for you.
1: Uh, I'm but, the general shape of the show, yeah.
0: But yeah, I was just curious if there was like... I, I know you guys have lo- loads of crazy animals that all want to kill you. So I, I'm just wondering, for like uh, Australian-based animal, is there anything that you think is a, a strange pet to own or something that someone... Shouldn't know it as a pet, but does.
1: I don't think so. Not really any more than anywhere else. Um, I mean, we pretty much have the same pets as other people, you know, cats and dogs and whatever else. It kind of pisses me off when Australians have parrots in cages, because there are parrots just fucking everywhere, flying around where they should be. I don't understand why people then decide to put one in a cage in their garden, especially when you have like a cockatoo in a cage that they keep in the back garden and it's there screeching to all the wild ones sitting in the tree 50 feet away. That just seems like an unusual form of torture to me. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't know that anybody has particularly strange pets over here, like we've got tropical fish and uh, a dog and two cats and a lizard, so I, I kind of live in a bit of a zoo myself, but um, we have a we have a, a central bearded dragon, which is a um, an Australian lizard thing that <laughs> we have as a pet. So uh, yeah, I'm probably in no ca- I'm probably in no position to judge anybody else's pet choices. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice. All right. So here's what uh, I've been waiting to ask you: the Rue. How how's it been, man? Like it's it's just you started a trend. Trying... Uh, of Creature Features, you, you involved so many people in the horror community. And even if someone doesn't know any of us, it's still a damn-fucking-tastic time. <laughs> How's it been, the experience? It, it's insane, frankly. It's um, <laughs> Yeah, like, like I mentioned,
1: I, I tell sort of in, in the start of the book, I, I just write a little kind of um, sort of snapshot about how it came to happen. It was just one of those really sort of fortuitous timing things. Um, yeah, when we should have all been probably doing something more constructive, we just, a lo- load of us are all just shooting shit on Twitter and a load of you guys, you know, writers and reviewers and whatever else started talking about it. And, you know, then this cover got mocked up and eventually I kind of got talking to writing the story. Um, and it only really worked because I was right between projects and was planning to write a couple of short stories over the Christmas break. Um, and one of those short stories was going to be basically the subject matter that ended up becoming the novella that is the roo. um it's just that i I'd, at the time i wasn't sure what sort of monster i was going to use in this story and then when people were talking about that i'm like well fucking now i could use a crazy demonic kangaroo that would be hilarious um and and that so it just kind of the, the timing just landed exactly right and so i just wrote this story it's not the sort of thing that could really ever happen again you know the fact that in the middle of december we People on Twitter are talking about this ridiculous idea, and at the end of January, I self-published the novella, and it just sort of goes gangbusters. So, um, yeah, it, a, a bizarre sequence of events, and one I'm certainly very thankful for. I'm really pleased with how sort of well-received it's been and how much fun people are having with it. And it's not really, it's not the sort of thing I normally write. Like it, like we mentioned earlier, it's uh, it's exploitation, it's absolutely sort of schlocky B movie creature feature horror. Um, There's a bit more sort of substance to it, I hope, underlying that. But it is genuinely. I was just sitting there writing this thing, laughing as I was writing it, going, "What what bizarre fucking murder can I come up with next? What if you know?" It was basically a process of constantly trying to one up myself with the different and insane ways that a kangaroo could kill people, Um, and and using the names of all you guys, you know, like all these people that I talk to on Twitter all the time. Just, I everybody that was involved in it, I got to the point where I was just jotting down this list of everybody that was going, Yeah, you have to write this. And I was going, Yeah, okay, fuck you, you're going to die in it too. Um, and so I just ended up, and so I, would ju- I literally just had a list. And every time I needed a new character, I just crossed off the next name on the list and threw him into the story. Um, and it was just purely to use the names. Obviously, I made the characters sort of fit the, the setting and whatever else. But um, yeah, so ended up becoming hugely entertaining, just finding. New and ridiculous ways for a kangaroo to kill these poor bastards in this remote outback town. So it's, it's, it's been huge fun, and people keep saying, "Oh, you're going to write more?" You're gonna, and it's like, well, it was kind of a bit of a one-off bizarre thing, and it kind of triggered this little flood of other stories like it, which is just fantastic. It's awesome to see other people now writing these crazy creature features of you know different like possums and cassowaries, and who knows what else is <laughs> going on. Um, I, am so, I did deliberately leave a sort of um, a, a sort of open-ended aspect to the ending so that I could always follow it up if I wanted to, and there is a temptation to do it, and I do kind of have an idea for a second a second novella that, that could follow on from what happens in the room. And I even have a, a real cheesy pun title for it um, if I did go ahead and do it, but I don't know whether or not I will, so I'm not sort of saying any more about it than that at the moment.
2: I can't believe you would even throw that out there after what happened with the first one. You got roped into it from nothing.
0: <laughs> I know. You have
2: absolutely signed that warrant at this point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it's probably one of those things that when, um, if I get to a, a sort of a lull between projects where I'm not like under deadline for anything else, and then I've, I don't have any edits coming in or whatever else. I might find one of those sort of natural gaps in a schedule where I just go, ah, fuck it, all right, and I just see if this second in that sort of idea comes together or not. But I equally I I don't want to just flog a dead kangaroo. Like it's (laughs) it kind of works well for that one, and it was a lot of fun, and it was this yeah this sort kind of schlocky event that's uh, and it's a novella, so it's you know it's you know a novella's 120 150 words, which is pretty much the literary version of a movie um so you know it's kind of like it, it is sort of unashamedly um a written version of a of a sort of creature feature horror movie um and as is often the case a lot of the time when you get those movies the original movie is just a sort of it's heaps of fun in the classic and then people try to make more and it's always diminishing returns um so i don't really want to um you know spoil what fun we had with the first one by putting out another one just for it's just for the sake of it but uh, if the ideas come together and it, and it it feels like there's a good gap for it and a good opportunity for it then yeah maybe who knows
0: all i'm gonna say is my favorite scene involves brennan
1: <laughs> that's that's uh, a favorite scene from a lot for a lot of people <laughs> I've, 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 there's, there's two particular deaths in in the rue that i've had the most feedback for um and brennan is one of them uh, rich duncan is the other that
0: was it yeah i didn't know if i okay well i didn't say that because i didn't know if you get upset all right yeah that, that's my fa- favorite death scene as is riches yeah <laughs> those are the two
1: uh and that's where i yeah also where i was just sitting there going "Oh, this is fucking insane i can't believe i'm writing this but um yeah, people have just got on board and, <laughs> and they're enjoying it as well, so that's awesome.
0: No, that be a great director, and it, I mean, like, I don't think it's fucking crazy to say is Guillermo, Guillermo oh God. Guillermo say, Yes. Yeah, him. Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to see him
1: uh, do a treatment of it if he's a listener. Then by all means, let's, let's talk options.
0: <laughs> oh, if he's a listener to this, then I'll shit my pants. Get Get Daniel Cross on the phone, my friend. <laughs> Cause he wrote, didn't he? He wrote that book, uh, The Shape of Water, right? That Guillermo took over. I'm not was sure.
1: Actually, wrote the book. Yeah, and, uh, Guillermo did the film, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure he wrote the
0: book. I thought it was. Hey, I, I apologize if I'm fucking that up. I thought it was. Uh, and I might not even be saying his last name, uh, right? Daniel Cross, Kraus. Yeah, he That's... wrote the. Yeah, he wrote The Shape of Water. That that was him. And then uh, he also did the George Romero novel that looks amazing. I, I, haven't, I haven't read that yet, though. Uh, uh, looking into. Brittany, do you have any more questions
2: about the room? No, but I, I, I do want to make sure we, uh, we, we talk about uh, Recall Night before we wrap up. Ah, yeah. So that's out uh, this summer, is that right? For you, yeah, we winter for me. Yeah, July. Oh, that's that's right. That's right. The, the time yeah. thing's bad enough. The seasons, too. Oh, my gosh. Too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't try
1: to keep up. Yeah, it's a fucking mess. Um, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, um, so when I first signed up with um, Grey Matter Press a few years ago, they signed me in a two-book deal, which was Devouring Dark um, as the novel, which is a standalone novel. That's the, the London um, gangster novel I was talking about. Um, and Manifest Recall, which is the sort of supernatural Southern Gothic novella. Um, they subsequently uh, published my collection Serve Cold last year. Um, but we were talking
2: um,
1: when when Manifest Recall came out, it, it it landed with quite a quite a splash. It was, I was it was very exciting to see how well received that was. People really enjoyed that. It's a big novella. It's like forty thousand nearly words, so it, it's a novella, but it's a long one. Um, people seem to really enjoy it. Uh, and the character, the main character of Eli Carver, is um, is an interesting character. You know, he's got this sort of peanut gallery of ghosts that constantly hang around and harass him and, and give him shit all the time. He's just trying to get on with his life. Um, and a lot of people started saying, oh, you know, that they really enjoyed Manifest Recall. And would, is there likely to be any more stories in that um, with that with, with Eli Carver? And I like, said, oh, I don't really know. And then after a while, it, the, the novella was was pretty popular. Um, and I got talking to Grey Matter Press about it, um, and we basically thought that, well, this is a this is an opportunity potentially to to start a series where we could write, you know, like a novella series. So, you know, back in the day, 40,000 words, forty to 60,000 words was pretty common for novels, you know, like um, a lot of the, the noir and pulp novels of the day were around that kind of word count anyway. Um and so we started talking about it, saying, you know, well, is there is there potential here to do a series of Eli Carver stories of, of that kind of length? And, um, and Graham and the press were basically like, well, we like the idea. Um, why don't we see what happens right the next one and see see how we go? Um, so and, I'd, and I brought it up with them because I had an idea for, for a follow up to Manifest Recall. I had an idea for a follow up with Eli Carver and what happens to him after the events of Manifest Recall. So okay, fuck okay, it, no worries. So I wrote the book and, and sent it in and, and Graeme and Manifest loved it and went yeah okay let's roll with it. and So that's now coming out in July and if that's popular as well and if people think that, um, that it's as good as Manifest Recall then you never know we might end up um, writing a few of them which would be great because he's a great character to write, it's great fun, it's you know it's kind of um, supernatural, it's, it's a bit sort of organized crime thriller, kind of southern gothic, it's got this um, hyper violent um aspect to it as well because you know it's, uh, it's a lot of a lot of uh, criminal activity going on and people being bastards to each other so yeah so they're good fun so hopefully um recall night will be as popular or more popular than manifest recall was so fingers
2: crossed i would think that that uh, peanut gallery of ghosts as you put it would be a the, the interplay between them and between eli carver that would be a lot of fun to write is that a blast
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that's where a lot of the uh, a lot of the appeal lies because I mean Eli Carver is not a nice guy, but he's trying to be a good guy. That's you know that's one of those uh, that's kind of the conceit of the story, especially with Manifest Recall. Um, but he's yeah he's haunted by these these five guys that he's killed over the years um, that are also not nice guys, and they're dead. They've got no reason to be any better, um, and they just fucking hate him. For killing them and they're just constantly hanging around and haunting him and, and giving him shit uh so it is kind of it is good fun to write and it is it's good fun to write the uh the sort of interplay between them um and you know are they really ghosts following him around or are they just sort of fractured aspects of his personality that's his way of trying to cope with all the shit that's happening to him and i get to play with all that uh, supernatural slash psychological kind of um, ambiguity with it with these stories and stuff but but those characters yeah they're, they're good fun one of them's kind of his friend and the rest of them are just a bunch of dicks and they're all given in grief and yeah so it's, it's kind of good fun and that's part of the fun of writing and, and building the series will be developing the relationship between him and these guys as well so
2: can you give us any specific plot or are you keeping that under wraps
1: um well at the end of manifest recall um eli cover basically has to go underground we don't really know what happens to him other than the fact that he's just like i'm out um with recall night he uh how can i put it without spoilers he he basically he gets an opportunity to to have a second chance at being a relatively normal life um doesn't have to stay in hiding anymore um and he runs into someone who has an interesting story of her own um, and he starts, he offers to help her and just gets drawn into a whole new world of mayhem off the back of that. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where it, where it kicks off from.
2: That's awesome. I, I absolutely loved the pacing of the first one. I think that's, that, that was kind of the biggest drawing for me is uh, I, if memory serves, I think you basically split it up over the course of the whole book into two parts and, you you get all the way to like page 70 or something and you're like oh shit there hasn't been a chapter break or anything like that it's just <laughs> kind of at this breakneck pace the whole time um and it was just that was so much fun for me to read
1: yeah that's and in some ways that was um, a bit of a difficulty in writing a up because with manifest recall with it it is kind of basically in two halves because the book starts with this guy who's got his memory's shot. He doesn't know who he is, why he is, where he is, he doesn't know anything that's going on. Um, Throughout the first half of the book is him basically piecing his memory back together and then there's this sort of huge gut punch right in the middle of the book um, that then triggers everything that happens in the second half of the book. Um, And so yeah, the pacing is is built around that as well. I I made a sort of conscious decision, that's not the sort of thing you can do twice. So with the new one, it it is divided more into more sort of sections like you'd expect it. It does have sort of more frequent chapters like you'd expect it to have. Um, But hopefully it does also have that same kind of pacing. Like we dropped in on the action. There's a few little bits of flashback here and there that helps to understand what's going on and and the process of where he's got to. And with any luck, um, the pace is maintained in a similar sort of way. I mean, the fact that they're... Um, novellas you know sort of around thirty five forty thousand words keeps the pace up because it's not like a eighty ninety thousand word novel that you fill up with subplots and other things that are going on there's that's the beauty of a novella I think is when it comes to crime and horror and stuff like that it's a fantastic length because it lets you develop a big story but that's completely fat free
0: absolutely um. I'm just gonna throw this out there. My favorite novella ever is *I Am Legend* by Richard Matheson. It's just, so yeah, per- it's so perfect. Yeah,
1: it's one of my favorite books of all time. It's an absolutely outstanding book. And if all you've seen is the Will Smith film, fix that shit because that yeah. film is awful. So, so go and read the book. There's nothing like it. It's uh, yeah, definitely one of my one of my all-time
0: favorite books. That's the worst thing. Like when someone, when someone watches a film adaptation of a book and they're just like, "Uh, uh, I'm not going to read that. I saw the movie. It sucked. And you just try to convince them. And and when you reach those folks that are like, I don't read, don't you just want to like cry a little bit on the inside? <laughs>
1: Especially because with that movie, they like the first half of the movie, it wasn't that bad. Um, an adaptation bringing that story sort of up to date. Um, it, it was okay the first half, I was like, oh, okay, they're not doing too bad, you know, they've made changes to, to bring it up yeah, sort of into the modern age. But then the second half, it just went fucking insane and just so bad. Everything, every bad decision they could possibly make, they did right up to the point where they completely missed why the book is called i am legend like the whole point of the fucking story they did away with it oh, fuck off. yeah i know Dude, yeah that,
0: the ending was perfect i after i read it, i was like that's a perfect title and on top of yeah. that for anyone that hasn't read it definitely read it it's worth your time it's a short read and The thing that I loved is that there's a part in here which reminded me of The Stand. I'll get to that in a moment, where um, Dr. Neville's in his house, just like every other night. And he hears there's these beautiful women outside calling him, but, you know, they're vampires. Um, And he knows they're just trying to... They can talk, which is not a thing in I Am Legend. They're just creatures that are kind of able to talk almost, but they can't. But in I Am Legend, they're people but they're not because they're vampires and it's just him going crazy. I think he's a, he, he's just drinking himself at night to sleep. I, I might be, no, wait, he's a, using drugs, isn't he? Hmm. Yeah. So, something like that. I think there's maybe a mix here. Well, um, I just like how they talk about that. There's a pit that he, he throws bodies in. There's, he, he there's a little talk about the generators, just little details that I loved about that book um and the reason why i say the stand uh reminds me of that did you read that book
1: i read that book years and years ago when i was a teenager so i have a very sort of uh, vague memory of it but yes i know the general shape of it
0: well there's this one part where uh one of the main character point of view characters is inside of a uh an apartment in new york city and they just hear this man yelling um I can't remember what he's yelling, but eventually just stops yelling. And, and that's the, you don't see what happens to him. And just like an eye of legend, it, it's just like you hear the monster or someone that hears a monster. And then it's the ambiguity that creeps me out so much of what could have happened. I just love stuff like that.
1: Well, that's the real power of writing a lot of the time. I mean, like, so I can't, I'm paraphrasing badly, but someone once said, um, terror is looking at the monster, but horror is knowing the monster's coming, but not having seen it yet, kind of thing, or not knowing where it is, but just knowing that it's on the way. Um, and so, and that's a, that's a good um, sort of way to help shape your, your thoughts about what horror is, because if you just, if it's just right in your face there, then that's a type of horror, it's kind of, it's terror, but it's it doesn't have that, that deep sort of visceral um, power that a lot of horror can have but a lot of that comes from ambiguity um, and uncertainty and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a, a powerful thing to remember when, when writing horror, when, when writing any kind of tension, really.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know what? We, we going to wrap it up in a minute, but before we do, I was going to ask if you are reading any books that you would like to just throw out there to, to kind of recommend
1: um yeah well i'm always reading um i am i still am a voracious reader the same as i was when i was a kid um i've just recently i've been lucky i'm not sure if it's out just yet actually or might be out when this goes to air i'm not sure um but stephen graham jones is um guaranteed to to provide because everything short stories novels anything with others anything he writes is just um outstanding and i got i got lucky enough to read a um uh, what do you call it, an uh, advanced reader's copy of um, The Only Good Indians, which is his new novel. Yeah. Uh, I just read that recently and that's just fucking outstanding. He's such a good writer and he does stuff that's always... Um, it, it's never quite what you expect. He's, he's one of the few genuinely original writers that um, frequently uh, surprises me. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed that just recently. And it's, it's an older book, but uh, just recently, I also read um, Kathy Koja's, is it Koya or Koja? I'm not sure how you pronounce her name. It's really Koja, but I don't
0: know yeah. if that's right. Kathy
1: Koja, yeah, maybe. She wrote a book called The Cypher, which is, uh, I think it was, in fact, her first book. It's it's, a, it's, a, it's old now, um, but it, that's an outstanding book. I mean, that's truly, like, fantastic weird fiction. It's it's just so fucking weird and so compelling and so disturbing. <laughs> um, so I, I really, really enjoyed that. That's definitely one to check out nice. uh, and then just to throw some short stories in there i'm a huge short story fan uh doug morano's uh an editor he puts out amazing books uh he mm-hmm. just released, uh an anthology called miscreations
0: mm-hmm.
1: that, that's a fantastic uh anthology of horror stories with some really great authors in there that's definitely worth looking at so i'd recommend that one too
0: yeah it's an impressive lineup um uh, yeah those those certainly like some solid Solid recommendations there. Uh, Bernie, what about you?
2: Uh, actually, really quick, uh, Alan, any favorites in Miscreations?
1: Oh, there are, but I'm not going to name because I don't like <laughs> 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 it. Re- I prefer people to go in call. There's, there's some fantastic. Uh, to be if i if I name one of them, I think potentially for me personally, maybe the best story in the book was Josh Meliman's um story that just fucking blew my mind that's he's all i mean obviously he's always such a great writer but that particular story
2: that was such an interesting one the way it was it even if you kind of know what point of view it's going to take and what it's going to be about it's you know that's just an author who's going to take you in a direction that you don't expect so yeah i i love that one uh i i also really liked the uh ramsey campbell one in there
1: yeah, yeah, um, Ramsey Campbell. I mean, he's, uh, he's just a le- living legend, isn't he, in horror. He's like, yeah, there's a few people that you can always rely on to, to supply good stories. And other people in that book as well, you know, Led Barron, Victor Laval, people like that, they, they're the sort of people you just know, if you're going to read something from them, you know, it's going to be good. So.
2: Oh, so, uh, yeah, you you asked what I was reading. That's right. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, most of the way through. Uh, Brian Moreland has uh, Tomb of Gods coming out uh, on Flame Tree uh, at the end of the month. And it's uh, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, somebody had put up something saying this is kind of like an R-rated, off-the-walls Indiana Jones. And I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, kind of focusing in on Egyptian mythology and Egyptian underworld. And I, I love when uh, my horror gets a little bit of mythology in it. I'm also uh, a little bit into that Stephen Graham Jones book that you're reading. And I would agree with you. I, I I'm about 40% in, which is just the beginning of part two. And if you've read that, you know pretty much where in the book that is. And the tonal shifts that he pulls off in that book are pretty astonishing
1: <laughs> start when he with the with the opening sequence when you think you go okay so this is the character this is what's going on um you're expecting the book to follow that and then you're like oh wait what the fuck just happened and then yeah he, yeah that's
2: that, exactly that, what happens at 40% is what the fuck just happened
1: <laughs> yeah exactly it's 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 uh it's he's a brilliant writer he's yeah his short fiction is amazing one of the most i can't actually remember what the story is called now um, but one of the most um, sort of resonating short stories that I ever read was was by Stephen Graham Jones it's about a father and son uh, lost in the woods uh, in the winter in the snow um, man I wish I could remember what that story was called it's in one of um, Alan Datlow's year's best horrors anyway it's definitely in there and everybody should read every single volume of that so, so go and read those and find it but yeah <laughs> yes Stephen's an incredible
2: writer uh, the last thing I'm in, I, I just started, funny enough, is Playing Possum by uh, Stephanie Raybig, who is uh, the the second in the uh, series, if you will, of you know creature feature books that Keelan Patrick Burke did the cover for, uh, as long as the authors would donate the proceeds to uh, uh, some some form of charity. I think that she said that she donated hers to the uh, or is donating hers to the World Wildlife Fund
1: yeah um, it's um yeah when let's see when the rue first came up, that wasn't part of that that was, I bought the cover off um Keelan for that one um once the whole situation uh kind of got crazy, and I was bullied into writing this book and <laughs> I, okay, so i did but um but subsequently following that, this should be a thing. Keelan should make covers for people to write books, and of course he's a brilliant cover designer, um and he was basically saying, right, I'll do a few, but I will only give you a cover if you donate all proceeds to some sort of wildlife fund. So so it didn't include the rule. That was already sort of done and dusted by that point. But then he then ended up doing a few covers for people uh, on the on the promise that they would donate um yeah, their royalties to to wildlife funds. So Stephanie did that one. Uh Max Booth III I think, is doing a cassowary one no no james sabatari is doing a cassowary one max booth is doing uh oh he's doing the dillo <laughs> he's doing one about yeah. killer armadillo um <laughs> yeah so yeah so it's kind of yeah it's, it's all gotten crazy it's all out of hand
2: i've actually got it's
1: 70s good. uh sitting on my kindle i haven't i haven't got to it yet but yeah I, uh yeah i've got that one sitting in there so i've got that to look forward to
2: i've been looking forward to that one since i saw she uh was putting it out patrick how about you what are you reading um i'm reading
0: devil's creek uh i like it i'm slow at reading this one because uh, life's a little crazy right now so i have not been able to read a whole lot but uh i'm, I'm a little over 100 pages and i just say it's yeah, good Kiesling, right yeah Todd Keesling uh this is my first book i read by him and i just think it's he's a good storyteller
1: yeah he wrote a novella um Ah, fuck i can't remember what it was called i'm terrible for titles and names but it's a it's a sort of uh a rock and roll
0: novella oh uh, uh came out with a uh, um camp crystal i mean <laughs> crystal lake publishing crystal lake. uh yeah maybe it did yeah it's um it's reconciliation uh
1: Oh, your memory's better than mine. Yes, definitely something like that. Hang on, I'm quickly spinning through good reads because now I've brought it up. I need to make sure I get it right. Um yeah, but that that's that's all I've read of his so far. Um but I fucking loved it. That was I thought that was fantastic. So uh, yeah, that that was a really good read. I found I
0: think, it yeah. the final the fi- oh, did you find it too?
1: With the final reconciliation? Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, he got the new kind of read. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah your memory's better than mine i didn't have anything i just remembered it was by him <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh yeah so uh, i don't know i think it's great uh, i enjoy talking to him too um we're gonna have him on next month uh looking towards that he's always fun to listen to um when he's on podcast but uh alan before i forget where can people follow you oh um
1: they my name, A-L-A-N-B-A-X-T-E-R, on Twitter is um, definitely an easy one. I'd spend way too much time on Twitter. I end up making <laughs> books. Um, that's uh, So, yeah, You can I'm always around there, so you can hit me up there. You can find all about sort of me and my books and stuff like that at my website. There's heaps of information there, and there's um, excerpt, free excerpts from most of my books and stuff are there, and you can find that at alanbaxter.com.au. Um, and that's probably all you need to know. There's a bunch of social media links on the website too, so find Fan- it that
0: way. Fantastic. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, even though I tried getting you on here two hours before we agreed to <laughs> meet.
1: <laughs> Always happy to chat. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Um, and you're going to be writing a whole lot of books uh, this year, it sounds like, and especially that one for your son. If that does happen, Please let us know because uh you got a few quite a few fans here at Deadhead Reviews, I was gonna say. Uh <laughs> Deadhead Space our podcast. Yes, uh, the names yeah. are very similar. <laughs> yeah, well
1: thanks. I so, am um, sort of twenty thousand words in, so I'm maybe halfway or almost halfway. So it's definitely gonna get written and once I've read it to my son, if he decides it's okay, then maybe I'll look to see if somebody wants to publish it too. So you never know, I'll certainly let you know. It'll be uh I'll, I'll always talk about the stuff i've got coming out so yeah i'll let you know for sure
2: if i you gotta believe... get that seal of,
1: it's
2: gonna say gotta get that seal of approval yeah Absolutely. that's
1: right it's, i'm writing it for him so it's gonna go it's gonna go through him first and we'll see where it goes from there
0: well that's exciting man uh i i wish good things for that and it's really cool that you're writing the book for your son that's that's awesome
1: yeah, it's it's important I think. You know, it's like it's he knows I write books and he looks at the covers and he's like, Oh, that guy's having a bad time <laughs> Yeah <he is. laughs> uh, you know, he he's aware of the fact that I write books for grown ups and so I don't know what he thinks of that. He just knows that, you know, from the mind of a six year old that's like forever away. So if I turn up with a book and say, Hey, I wrote this book for you and you know, in the next sort of few months we can start reading it then uh yeah, hopefully He'll appreciate it. I mean, you might tell me it's rubbish, but, yeah, six-year-olds are honest, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Oh, I didn't like that story. We'll uh, see.
0: Well, my fingers are crossed for you there, Dad. Um, yeah, thanks. And, and hey, we, we, we'd love to have you on in the future again, so please keep us in mind for any books in the future.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm always happy to come on. Give me a holler. You know where to find me on Twitter. I'm sure we'll stay in
0: touch. Well, hey, you have a good day, and we'll have a good night. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much. All right, Alan. Have a good one. See you, Brennan. Bye,
2: guys. Yeah, nice. Take
0: care. We are in your mind. We
2: are all around. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.